This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good evening, ladies, gentlemen, sisters, brothers, gender neutral and gender fluid. My name is Yvonne Weldon. I am a Radruan from Cowra here in New South Wales, from the waters of the Clare, which later became known as the Lachlan, and of the Murrumbidgee Rivers. I am the elected Deputy Chairperson of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, who are the culture authority under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act for the land we're on. I would like to pay my respects to all elders past and present, to all First Nations, to you and the ancestors' lands that you travelled from. It is always an honour to provide a welcome to country. It isn't a tick or box process. This practice and our traditions are varied across this country and has been done since time began. For me, it is a profound honour and a luxury of time time given by you, and time of the many warriors that created the pathways for all of us. A welcome isn't just words, it is a reflection of where we are. Not this modern day place, but the continuous link of life, lessons, purpose, and nurturing supplies. We are meeting here on the lands of the Eora. The boundaries of our traditional owners are embedded into the earth's natural landscapes. The Eora Nation's country covers the Hawkes River in the north, the Nepean in the west, and the, Gen and, and the Georges River in the south. My people, the Aboriginal people, have been a part of this land for more than 65,000 years. We are the oldest living culture of the world, and we have practised our traditions for thousands of years and endless generations. Australia is the only country to be its own continent. And wherever you travel on this beautiful country of ours, understand you're entering the lands of nations, tribes and clans, existent before all written words and all history, and it continues here today. On behalf of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, the Elders and the members, I welcome everyone to the land of the Gadigal. I acknowledge the Gadigal people whose spirits and ancestors will always remain with this land our Mother Earth. Being here for this important oration, we need to reflect upon the footprints we are all leaving, and they are large footprints, to know where we're heading. Remember to reflect about my people's stories, our practices, and our connection to the land that were forever changed when we were erased from the view. My people lived in unison with this country for thousands of generations, learn from our ancient practices because we are still here. As we're nearing the end of National Reconciliation Week and during this time, we have milestones to reflect upon. National Sorry Day, the anniversaries of Bringing Them Home report, the 67 referendum and the Mabo decision. Since 67 and some of this recognition, there is still so much more to be done. Reconciliation is not just a word. There needs to be an ownership of the behaviours and the treatment of my people. It needs to be addressed, not to create a divide, but rather to work together in making this contemporary world of my people livable with us truly included. 
included in employment, on boards, in our social circles, and included in decision making. Included in our worlds, just as we have included you in yours. Let us be honest about the difference we can make not to avoid the ones we haven't so far. We are in this together. Be brave, make change towards a reconciled future. Don't just think about what you can do during this week alone. Take action and make positive change each and every day, bringing my people, your people, and all our people together. I know that the answers to the questions about my people not only needs to have, but should have, the voice of Aboriginal people first, because we are the first people of this country. Then we can all walk together with this recognition is truly accepted. Be the change today for tomorrow's history, so we still can have a world that is livable. So let us all draw upon my people's spirits as we continue on our journey. May my people's spirits walk with you and guide you as we strive forward for us all. Again, on behalf of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, welcome to Gadigal Land. This always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you and have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much, Yvonne, for your wonderful welcome to country. Yvonne is a regular guest at the Australian Museum and she's an incredible representative with the work that she does for her people, not just here in Sydney, but right across the state. Thank you so much, Yvonne. Hi, everybody. I'm Kim McKay, and I'm the very proud and privileged director and CEO of the Australian Museum. And I'm just really thrilled to welcome you all here tonight. I also want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people, and to say I'm really proud to live and work on Gadigal land. And I want to acknowledge all the other uh, First Nations and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and other Pacific peoples in the room with us tonight. So every Thursday night this year we've been holding late nights at the museum. It's not when the animals come alive, well not just yet anyway, but uh, this is an event supported by the New South Wales Government. And tonight something is really special here, and that is the second annual Talbot Oration. The first was delivered last year by Tim Flannery. Now, I will note that we're filming and recording tonight's oration for use on our website and also to share with media. So if you don't want to be filmed or you're with someone you shouldn't be with, it's not my problem. <laughs> Now, tonight's presentation is named in honour of former Australian Museum Director Professor Frank Talbot AM in recognition of his achievements in marine research and environmental science here in Australia and on the world stage. And you saw that wonderful video telling a little bit about Frank's extraordinary life. It is wonderful to have Frank Talbot with us here this evening. He's a living legend in the global museum community. In addition to being a former director of the Australian Museum, he's the only Australian to have been made director of the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington, DC. A marine biologist throughout his life and an academic, Frank has been a true advocate for science and the important role that museums play in scientific research. In fact, today here at the Australian Museum, we have over 100 scientists 
working day in, day out, or Chris Helgen, who's our chief scientist, tells me they're working day in, day out. I hope so. Um, but to build on that museum science. Now, it was Frank's vision that led to the Australian Museum establishing the Lizard Island Research Station on the Great Barrier Reef some 49 years ago. He was an early advocate and leader in the con conversation around climate change and understood only too well that our response to climate change determines our future prospects, health, and the sustainability of our natural environment. Frank, and he won't mind me telling you this, at 92 years of age, is an inspiration to us all. And our dedication of this oration to him is a tribute to his commitment to increasing our understanding of the natural world. Please join me in acknowledging Frank for his leadership vision and significant contribution to the scientific research of the natural world. Frank Talbot. And Frank told me he drove himself here tonight, so just beware. <laughs> now, World Environment Day is the 5th of June, this Saturday, so it's very timely for us to be gathered here tonight for this oration. Following recent climate events, including the devastating floods, the black summer bushfires, and coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef, it's never been clearer that the time to act is now. And it seems that was one of the clear messages that the Australian public responded to in the federal election just a week and a half ago. Our museum, the Australian Museum, the first in the nation, is internationally recognised as a thought leader for museums stepping up engagement with climate change. Indeed, we were recently recognised with the International Climate Smart Award 2022 announced in Berlin for our focus on initiatives which transform public behaviour towards a more sustainable, climate-resilient future. And that was against all the other museums in the world, so we're pretty proud of that. Our team, informed by the scientists at the Australian Museum Research Institute, First Nations Knowledge Systems and the museum's own collections, is strengthening collaborations and advancing research into the dynamics of climate change in Australia. The recently established Australian Museum Climate Solutions Centre will build on our existing work to advance the conversation by collaborating with some of our nation's leading advocates to inspire hope and action for the most pressing of global challenges. And some of those leaders are in the room tonight. The Climate Solutions Centre curator, Dr Jenny Newell, will tell you more about this soon. But before we get underway, I want to acknowledge some other very special people in the room with us tonight. David Armstrong, the president of the Australian Museum Trust and some fellow trustees are here, as well as trustees of the Australian Museum Foundation. We have Kate Haywood, the chair of the Lizard Island Reef Research Station with us tonight as well as the wonderful Dr. Des Griffin, another former Australian Museum director, scientist and fellow. We have members of the Climate Solutions Centre Advisory Group, and I think we also have Dr. Sophie Scamps here. Is Sophie here? Do we see her? Over there. Dr. Sophie Scamps, of course, is the new member for the seat of McKellar. Stand up, Sophie.
Of course, the Teal Independent, and we're just really thrilled, Sophie, for you to represent McKellar, somewhere where I grew up, and also uh, to get that level of support from your local community to affect change. Got a lot of faith in you for the future. Thank you for coming. And I, w I also want to acknowledge um, a lot of my colleagues from the Australian Museum with us this evening. I mentioned Professor Chris Helgen um, is with us and many others. I think uh, Russell Briggs, who runs our exhibitions team, is here as well. There he is, right in front of me. Sorry, Russell, I missed you there. Uh, as well as many other colleagues and friends with us this evening. So, and I see Professor Leslie Hughes here. Oh, it's like old home week. So it's great. So now it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr Jenny Newell, curator of the Ames Climate Solutions Centre. Jenny has a goal to increase engagement in environmental stewardship through the medium of museums. She also convenes the Museums and Climate Change Network in Museums and is a member of the International Council of Museums Working Group for Sustainability and also has a very long career in museums working with Pacific communities on culture and climate change. Please welcome Dr. Jenny Newell. Thanks, Kim. And thanks very much, everyone. It's so wonderful to see a whole room full of people who are obviously really committed to climate action, just as we are here at the museum. I'm very glad to announce that the Australian Museum now has a Climate Solutions Centre. This centre is working to increase public understanding and engagement in climate solutions. Headed up by Kim and our executive leadership team, curated by me, the centre is bringing together people who are advancing solutions across many sectors and communities. We're creating ways to communicate their insights effectively to a broad audience. We have established an advisory group with some of Australia's greatest minds in climate solutions, as Kim mentioned, we have some, several of them with us here tonight in the audience and on stage. And uh, Dr. Rebecca Huntley is helping us to ensure that what we create is relevant to very diverse audiences, including those who don't like to think about climate change at all. Other members, including our panelists tonight, are helping us understand essential nature-based, community-based and tech-based methods for tackling climate change solutions that are often not covered in mainstream media. This collaborative centre to promote climate communications is a pioneering initiative within the museum sector. We are working with other cultural institutions here and overseas, and it is heartening to see museums around the world increasingly stepping up to our duty of care, not only to the past and the present, but also the future. The Australian Museum's Climate Solutions Centre is designing touring exhibitions, events, materials for schools, exciting digital resources, great media content and a program of climate conversations. You can see our Changing Climate exhibition up on level two and from next month, Future Now, an exhibition featuring dioramas of sustainable human nature landscapes starts its tour with Stockland shopping centres and then heads out across New South Wales cities and towns, showcasing the many ways that Australians are creating a more livable future now. Do stay tuned. We'll be keeping the Climate Solutions Centre website updated with our new projects. We hope that events like tonight's oration will spark your own conversations 
which will surely inspire more action to better care for our world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jenny. And I just want to acknowledge our Auslan interpreters here tonight too, who are, are helping some of the people in the audience and also those who will be watching it online later. So tonight's Talbot Oration is going to look at the role that image plays in enhancing and inspiring people to take action on climate change. Social researcher Dr Rebecca Huntley has focused on climate change since seeing images of the school climate strikes in 2018. The visceral anxiety and impassioned efforts of the students inspired her to do what she could to make a difference for her own children's generation. I'm pleased to say Rebecca has two of her children with us this evening too. A respected author of a number of books, including How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference, she is a commentator, strategist and researcher. Now, following Rebecca's keynote, she'll be joined by Toshiko King, a proud Kalkolog woman from Masik in the Torres Strait Islands, and Dr. Saul Griffith, engineer and author of The Big Switch, for a panel discussion moderated by Australian Museum trustee and distinguished professor Larissa Berenteo, as well as actions the public can take uh, to help minimise, to discuss those actions the public can take. And you'll be able to ask some questions then, we'll have some microphones. But now it's my great privilege to welcome our guest speaker to the stage, Dr. Rebecca Huntley, for the 2022 Talbot Oration, Inspiring Visions for a Climate Solution. Rebecca. Uh, good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Yep, fantastic. Uh, I too want to open with an acknowledgement that we are meeting on the lands of the Gadigal of the Eora Nation and pay respects to their elders past and present. I am constantly inspired by their knowledge and care for country and their leadership and advocacy on climate justice. So I had two possible openings for today's oration. This is one I prepared. <clears throat> We might have lost the battle at the last election, but I'm in no doubt we are winning the war. Thousands of Australians voted with the climate in mind, and even though candidates who put climate action front and centre fell short of victory, I know that deep and lasting change is coming, so we'll just do that. <laughs> Sophie, Sophie's too far for me to throw it at her, and I, I, don't, I don't litter. <laughs> Um, when I was invited to give this prestigious uh, talk at the museum, I was really honoured, but I knew immediately what I wanted to explore, namely how images can persuade us to act on climate change. Don't get me wrong, I'm a writer, speaker and mother of three girls, and I know the power of a few forcefully spoken words to motivate others. <laughs> but in my day job, I test messages for environment, uh, environmental and renewable energy campaigns, and I know words can turn people on, and turn people off to arguments about climate risk and climate solutions. So words do matter, but the ways in which we consume media have shifted towards online content with a focus on social media platforms where images and short videos reign. And even traditional media, like outdoor media, remains a vitally important platform for pictures that can persuade. 
and when Clive Palmer gives us back our billboards, I look forward to seeing brands across all sectors uh, find new and creative ways to tell climate stories. So the right visual depictions of climate change and climate solutions can offer extraordinary opportunities to inform people, bring them together and evoke action. And in the social research I do, I have seen images make people despair and disengage, make them sceptical, even cynical about the solutions. But I've also seen how images can be highly effective in capturing people's concerns about climate, making them real, relevant and personal, helping us imagine a future for ourselves, our families and our communities, where we're managing the already of an inevitable impacts of climate change in ways that don't resemble scenes in a Mad Max film. So a large part of the challenge of effective climate communication is making the threat of climate change tangible to people. Professor David Schlossberg, who is the head of the Sydney Environment Institute, argues that visualising the Anthropocene, whether it be the impacts on food chains, supply chains, human health, or the built and natural environment, is a way to prompt reflection on the vulnerability of the systems we rely on for our quality of life. And he writes, this is not to claim that making visible the violence and vulnerability of our current impacts on the non-human world will lead directly to more ethical or sustainable relationships with that world, but it is difficult to imagine how we can create an opening for such a relationship without a politics of sight, of making the consequences of our current actions that much more perceptible. The first step in environmental management of this age is exactly this kind of recognition and vision. So, unsurprisingly, I'm going to tell the story of the power of images by showing you some images. So, two images of inspiration, two of impact, and two of solutions. So, let's see if we can make this work. Oh, you've already done that. Oh, great. Is somebody doing that for me? Do I not even have to click? Oh, good. Excellent. All right. So, this is an image of the school strike for climate. And for those people in the audience who know me or have read my book, um, uh, you can just switch off now and check your mobile phones. But for the rest of you, it was actually seeing this image that transformed me kind of almost immediately from someone who was vaguely concerned about climate to a climate advocate. So it was December the 1st, 2018. I woke up, made myself a cup of coffee and turned on the television and saw these young people. Hundreds of teenagers skipping school and protesting on the streets. And they had all these extraordinary signs. There are no jobs on a dead planet. Act now or swim later. And my favourite sign, why should we go to school when you won't listen to the educated? And I thought to myself, <laughs> good on these kids telling that older generation that they need to do more about climate change. And then it hit me that I am old. I'm 50 years of age. It always comes as a shock. Um, I'm 50 and I have a, I've, I'm part of that old generation. I have a platform that these young people don't have. And at that moment, it was as if they were speaking to me, as if they were saying, do something. And really something shifted inside me. It was a sensation that felt physical, uh, as if vital organs in my body had moved. And they were saying, you need to join the fight, and so I did. So, looking back to that moment, what is obvious to me is that watching these young people didn't mean I suddenly believed the science more, um, I'd always known about climate change, I'd registered that uh, rationally but not emotionally. And this transformative moment actually didn't come from reading a report or 
watching a presentation from a climate scientist, it really came from a reaction to a crowd of children holding up these signs, many of them uh, young men and women who were only a few years older than my oldest daughter. So it just felt personal. And indeed, the social research confirms this. It's this personal connection that's important. I do, uh, I'm involved in a project called Climate Compass, funded by the philanthropic group Sunrise. It's an audience segmentation uh, that uh, divides the community from everything from alarmed to um, dismissive about climate. And one of the key determinants of whether you are alarmed on climate is how you respond to the question, how important is the issue of climate change to you personally? Now, for some people, this image might actually be a turn-off. It's not a universally effective image. But one of its undeniable strengths is that it represents collective action. And again, the research shows that if we keep showing climate action as being about individual behaviour, so reducing your individual carbon footprint or remembering your disposable coffee cup, all important things, it can actually be hard to sustain that on your own. It feel, can be um, isolating and disheartening. We have to show effective images of people collaborating, the power of active hope. It also gives us, us that sense that there is a social permission to care, to talk and to act. So, inspiration. Now let's talk a little bit about climate impacts. So we've probably all seen this photo or something like it. And I think we can agree, this is an award-winning uh, photo from a landscape and wildlife photographer, Kirsten Langenberger. It's stunning, it's evocative, unchecked climate change means that polar bears might be extinct before the end of this century. And this image makes that fact all the more vivid and heartbreaking. And in fact, when these images first emerged, they were really important. They gave us a sense that climate was in, um, really impacting animals that we um, are very familiar with uh, because of the melting of the Arctic ice. Um, and indeed, writer for The New Yorker, Michelle Moses, observes, the story of climate change has been told in part through pictures of polar bears, and no wonder. In their glittery, icy habitat, they reflect otherworldly beauty that rising temperatures threaten to destroy. Yet we've probably, well, I think certainly, reached an image, a time where images like this just really don't work as effectively as they did. They've become an almost climate cliché, one that runs the risk of actually desensitising people. Polar bears are great, but what have they got to do with me and what could I possibly do for them? For them, The exception, of course, might be for people in the towns like Norilsk in Siberia, where in 2019 a visibly sick and hungry polar bear just kind of turned up, ate from garbage dumps and kind of took a nap in a sand and gravel factory. So um, if you've got hungry polar bears in your backyard, then it is very is relevant and is personal. But for other people, um, this image just doesn't work. It just doesn't reflect their reality. And I um, found that in the work that I did for my book, I interviewed a fantastic ocean activist, Anna Passer. She wrote an advocacy handbook for young people on climate change. It was actually funded by her country's Department of Education. And she wrote that as a response to the dearth of climate change content that reflected her lived reality. And she told me that when she was looking around to educate young people about climate, she found no local materials, only materials with polar bears. And she said, that's not the symbol of climate change in my country. It's people losing their houses to floods or wading through waist-high water. 
So going back to David Schlossberg's comments, we do need to make visible the violence and vulnerability of our current impacts on the non-human world, but we must do it with images that are local and relatable as well as personal. Um, there's a fantastic team of Australian researchers previously working from the CSIRO, um, working in the discipline of psychology, and they um, have coined this term objects of care. It's an incredibly useful concept because it can refer to pretty much anything that matters to people. And it doesn't necessarily need to be an object. It can be a place, a sport, a hobby, a profession or a practice, a social or cultural value that we hold dear. And these researchers found that these objects of care have the capacity to be connectors to make the issue of climate change seem personally relevant to an individual, undermining the distancing effect that makes us feel climate change is far away in space and time. So, from polar bears to this. So this is an image of a photographer, presumably overwhelmed, as we all were, by witnessing the black summer fires in 2019 and 2020. And we know the statistics of those fires, but, and I've looked at them so many times and they just still astound me. Um, the smoke from those fires killed 450 people, affected 80% of the population, 26 lives were lost, 2,500 uh, oh, homes were destroyed and millions of hectares of land were burnt and we'll never understand how many animals were killed. Uh, not just koalas and kangaroos, but the insects and smaller creatures that are critical to our biodiversity. I did a lot of groups around the fires before and after, and it wasn't so much these statistics that people reflected on, it was the photos that they'd seen of fatigued and blackened firefighters, of koalas singed in the arms of their rescuers, of parents uh, holding frightened children in boats and on beaches. The image of the fires that continues to stay with me, again, was very personal. So I was scrolling through Instagram and came across the smouldering ruin of a holiday house that had uh, friends and I had rented a few months previously in Kangaroo Valley. And I felt this kind of overwhelming sense of loss. I remembered the wombats and the birds and the lizards and a, even a snake um, that had delighted my children. Uh, and I. I do remember the written words of the owner of that house that said they just didn't have the heart to rebuild. So at the time of the fires, I had been already writing the book and read much of the academic literature on the capacity of extreme climate-related weather events to drive acceptance of climate change science. The research shows us that these events can shift people already concerned about climate change into being alarmed. But can actually have a negligible effect on less concerned groups. And in fact, there is social research that shows you can actually have your entire livelihood destroyed by climate change and it can leave your attitudes to climate change unaffected. Uh, I did some research with a group of people before the fires about extreme weather events and climate change and I visited them again after the fires. I found that some people who were already very concerned had shifted, but other people were much more likely to blame arsonists, greenies, fuel load, and hotter than usual weather than climate change. Um, there is an important caveat to this though, I think, and a recent development, which is probably the only silver lining of the fact that we've had fires, COVID, and floods. 
there was a terrific election analysis by the Climate Council that showed that voters in most electorates hit by climate fuel disasters swung away from the coalition and towards those championing stronger climate change. Now, that might be because they felt abandoned by the government, but it may be that uh, extreme events will, particularly if we have lots of time after time, will actually shift public opinion, but it will not be the only thing. What are the utility of images like this in shifting public opinions about climate? Well, they're an important part of our toolkit as communicators. Have a look at the truly amazing visual petition that a group of Australian women have put together documenting the climate crisis. Uh, hashtag Everyday Climate Crisis has about a thousand photos taken by women and non-binary people across Australia showing the impact of climate change on their lives which will be tabled in Parliament. These kinds of images are in fact the polar opposite of the polar bear. They're local, relatable, personal, and in our efforts to communicate about climate change through these images, we need to show what climate change is doing now and what is ahead if we don't act effectively. And that's because people don't change unless something important is at stake or under threat. And by people, I also include politicians in that category. Um, but there is a danger that in our, physical, in our visual communications around climate, we can rely too heavily on what writer Per Espen Stokeness calls collapse porn. Don't Google that term. <laughs> it's not pretty. But what he's trying to say is that there can be this kind of, you know, endless photos of destruction that can be part of climate communications. And that can kind of bring about, not unlike the, um, uh, the polar bear, a sense of apocalypse fatigue and people turn away. That's why we need to balance these images with those of active collective hope and the right images of the solutions that we have. So, images of solutions. We've all seen these images, haven't we? Close-up shots of wind turbines, acres of solar panels. There are no people. There might occasionally be a tradie fixing a solar panel somewhere in there. So what's wrong with this picture? Well, really, from the public point of view, everything is wrong with it. Uh, don't get me wrong, we all love renewables. All the survey and focus group work I've done over the last three years has shown the vast majority of us, 70% upwards of Australia believe renewable energy is a better source of energy than fossil fuels, cleaner and increasingly more economically viable, that we should invest in renewable energy, it will create jobs and export opportunities now and into the future. And I'm happy to say, I think we are slowly but surely winning the economic argument for climate change. And, you know, I love renewables. I think wind turbines are beautiful. I actually feel quite patriotic about solar energy. In fact, it's my kind of um, professional ambition to make the solar panel on the wind turbine as Australian as a Hemsworth in Budgie Smugglers pashing a koala. And I think that should be a really good image. <laughs> that should be... The Renewable Energy Council should absolutely see if they can get that um, into an ad. But the problem with images that just focus on the renewable energy technology in landscapes devoid of people is they can really spark anxieties about the feared downside of the necessary energy transition. So when I test images like this in focus groups, the response is, this isn't just that this is boring and predictable, but perhaps something more concerning. Where are the people, is the common response. Or indeed, if there is a person in the landscape, 
that's nice, but I'm never going to hang off a wind turbine. Um, there is a general anxiety amongst the community that the benefits, including the employment opportunities of a low-carbon economy, will not be shared by all of us. We need to show people in the solutions, doing different kinds of jobs, not just those that require high vis and a hard hat. It's the absence of human beings in this context that works to potentially increase the sense of distance between us and the solutions, undermining the argument that action on climate change is good for everyone. And there's another even more worrying aspect of these kinds of images in that they ignore the importance of the natural environment. There is a genuine and increasing concern amongst the public in the work that I do that the rapid expansion of large-scale renewable energy will be at the expense not only of the natural environment but for some groups of the rights and opportunities of First Nations people. This is more than just the usual comments about birds being chopped up mid-air in wind turbines. It's clear that people want an integrated approach to environment and climate, which, from the point of view of tonight's topic, means more, not less, imagery around nature-based solutions. And can I add the images of uh, acres of sea kelp are just as beautiful, if not more so, than acres of solar panels. I'm cautiously optimistic, or I'm cautiously optimistic in life just generally, I'm cautiously optimistic that the new government has created a kind of a super department for climate change, energy, water and environment, so I hope we'll bring about an integrated approach with ministers with a lot of um, authority around the table. So what's this space? So we need more images of climate change solutions that show not just the technology, but the people that will benefit from that technology in all their diversity, living, working, playing in and around these solutions in harmony with the natural environment. Which leads me to my second image on solutions. Yeah. Those wind turbines were, there we are, okay. So, oops, you got it? I actually tested this image for a renewable energy campaign and it might seem a bit boring and pedestrian but it elicited a very positive response. It's very relatable. Solar panels are there but they're not in the centre, they're just quietly um, doing their thing in the suburban setting, greenery all around, making the daily lives of this family easier. It's absolutely relatable. The children are on their devices not talking to anyone. Um, <laughs> The man is sitting down reading a newspaper. The woman is bringing him a slice of chocolate cake, saying, why don't you empty the dishwasher for the first time in your fucking life, you lazy bastard. But it's, it's all very, very relatable. Um, but there are two problems. First problem, everyone is white. And I just looked up on the Australian Bureau of Statistics before this talk, not everybody in Australia is white. Who would have known? Um, so we do need to build a better, more inclusive visual language around climate. And this has been the consistent finding of a group called Climate Outreach. It's a US-based climate communications organisation. They've collaborated with Getty Images for an evidence-based library showing that actually we need to have images of both solutions and impacts that reflect the social, ethnic and geographical diversity of the country. And if we don't, it creates barriers to people engaging with these issues. And the final problem with this image. 
This family live in a house that if it's anywhere in or near a major city, probably costs about $10.6 million. <laughs> so we know from all the research that people on low incomes and people who are renting and the combination of those two feel as if climate solutions, whether it be electric vehicles or solar panels, are beyond their reach. And in many cases at this moment, they are. We need more policies at every level of government to ensure we do not have a climate solutions gap emerging along socio-economic lines. In the meantime, we need to show how climate solutions can be accessible to people who live in apartments on low incomes, because we know it is these people in insecure housing and insecure work who are suffering the most from the impacts of climate change. So, one final, final image before I conclude. So these are my objects of care. Uh, they're sitting on the couch where I watch the climate strikes. Um, a couple of weeks after I decided that I would focus as much of my energy, labour and time on climate research and advocacy as I could muster. So I started the oration today with my climate story about the climate strikers and the power of storytelling has been shown in all the research to be one of the best ways if not the best way to connect a global, complex, terrifying, highly politicised phenomenon like climate change to our daily lives. In combination with our stories, we can carry complementary images of how climate change matters to us personally. Images of our own objects of care, of the precious people, places and practices we cherish that are at risk if we fail to act and can be protected if we do. And let me end with some final words that are going to be in my oration regardless of the election result a few weeks ago. With a vision of a shared, healthy, joyous and livable future alive in our hearts and minds, we can get this done. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much, Rebecca Huntley, for that uh, overview. Rebecca does amazing research and she's working with us as well in our Climate Solutions Centre to make sure our communication really hits the mark on this. And I think as you think about the how we all communicate climate science to our friends, family, networks, work colleagues, it's good to know some of this stuff, isn't it, about how to have those conversations. We're going to tease that out a bit more. So please join me in a round of applause again for Rebecca Huntley. And I'd now like to introduce our panellists for this evening. We're honoured to be joined by Australian Museum trustee, distinguished professor Larissa Berendt, who will uh, facilitate the conversation. Now, the... Larissa is a Gamilaroi woman and the Director of Research and Academic Programs at the Jambana Indigenous House of Learning at UTS. Next page, one moment. Um, at the University of Technology, of course, UTS. She's a graduate of UNSW's Law School and has a Master's and an SJD from Harvard Law School. She's a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia and a founding member of the Australian Academy of Law. Larissa is also an award-winning author of multiple books and a well-known filmmaker. You would have seen many of her films and some new ones coming out soon too. She was awarded the 2009 NAIDOC Person of the Year 
and was the 2011 New South Wales Australian of the Year. An underachiever if ever there was one. Joining Larissa and Rebecca will be Dr. Saul Griffith. Come on up, Saul. And Tushiko King. Come on up, Tushiko. There we go. So I'll move over here. So Saul Griffith is an inventor, author, and founder of multiple companies and not-for-profits. He has led projects for agencies including NASA, DARPA, the National Science Foundation, and more. He's founded and co-founded successful companies, including one acquired by Google, another by Autodesk, and another by a consortium of vehicle manufacturers, including Toyota, another underachiever. In 2007, he was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship, the so-called Genius Grant for Inventions in the Service of Humanity in the United States. And if you know about the MacArthur Grants, you can't apply for them. They're just secretly, you're secretly picked out of the 350 million people and given one. <laughs> Toshiko King is a proud Kulkulog woman from the island of Marsik, Kulkulog nation of Zendath Kez, which is also known as the Torres Strait Islands. See, I learn something new every day here, it's great. Tish is a campaigner and organiser based on Nam, which is the traditional name for Melbourne. I thought it was just Melbourne in the rear vision mirror. No, she is spirited about sharing culture and amplifying social inequality and the rights of First Nations people. During her studies in ocean science on the Gold Coast, Tish became passionate and actively involved with grassroots environmental groups and rallies across Australia and overseas. With experience across different industries at CSIRO Oceans and Atmosphere, and the exploration and minerals industries, Tish brings a diverse perspective of First Nations and environmental justice. And she, of course, also was at the COP meeting earlier this last year now, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, was a great advocate for Pacific peoples too in the Torres Strait. So please join me in welcoming Larissa, Saul and Toshiko and Rebecca for this conversation. Thanks, Kim. Thank you, Kim. On behalf of the panel, I'd also like to acknowledge the custodians of the land, the Gadigal, and I know that Yvonne couldn't stay, but I'd like to extend my deep thanks to her for her really reflective words in welcoming us here tonight. Um, as a Gamilaroi Iwalari woman, I'm really heartened to see how respect for the environment, living sustainably <coughs> and caring for country has become prioritised by the wider Australian um, public as evidenced by the re election result. Uh, as Kim mentioned, I have the privilege of being one of the museum's trustees and it's a great honour to be here this evening and to see the museum continue to support action on climate change, something that the leadership of the museum has been really committed to for a very long time. So thank you, Rebecca, for a very thought-provoking oration and to Tish and Saul for joining us this evening in conversation. I thought one of the really wonderful things that came out of your talk, Rebecca, was you gave us such an insight into why this issue of climate, which affects everyone, was really personal to you. So I thought I might just start by asking Tish and Saul and perhaps asking you first, Tish, why is this an issue that is so personal to you? 
Um, thank you so much, Larissa, and I too just want to, as a proud Torres Strait Islander, um, introduce uh, uh, and pay my respects um, on the lands that I'm on. And so, Kulai Kid Nailak Esopoiban, Nalman Kowe Agath, Nud Mura Zapu Aimithen, Alak Nalpunka Poiban, Kapu Kubil, Mutamuka Mura Buai, A Mura Magbagal Nu, Nuzunel Tish, Nai Kakalag, Masignu Napa, Kakagal, Zenith Kes, Esso. And so that's just paying my respects and I acknowledge that I am that I am a proud Kakalug woman from the Central Island Group of Zenith Kes, the Torres Strait Islands. And I do pay my respects as well to the traditional custodians of the Yoranet Kulin uh, kinship, where we live, work, meet and pay respect to the elders past and present and those emerging leaders in our communities across the nation and acknowledge the many footprints before us who have gone before us for their honour in climate justice. And so I think just, you know, hearing, you know, and just after your speak, um, Rebecca, with like images, is that it actually just sparks up. I wish I could share an image here too, is like from my island, Musig, um, in English, York Island, and I know some of you might remember the uh, SBS series ran, Remote Area Nurse, that was my island. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, I think importantly was that we are surrounded by oceans and through the natural events that we already get, we, uh, that we already receive from Mother Nature, it's been exacerbated where we are, are now unable to sort, uh, you know, tell our seasonal cues and tell when we are going to have king tides. And in the recent years, we are seeing sea levels rising and king tides rapidly take away I, like so much of our, like, our islands that last summer I had to pick up the bones of my ancestors. And on our islands, we don't have a seawall and what my family are using are pallets that people use as forklifts, as their seawall putting palm trees and coconut husks so that we can stop sea levels from taking more of our land. And that is an image of how that's impacting our people. And so as a young Torres Strait Islander, you know, it is my cultural responsibility to be able to share our story, share our culture, share with you about, you know, what that justice is and how we got here in the first place. Lovely, thank you. And Saul, what about you? Why has this been an issue that's so personal to you? Um, it's a shamelessly good story. I had an incredible childhood. Um, I described my mother as half David Attenborough, half Mary Poppins. <laughs> um, she's an artist and a naturalist. And I also have a fabulous father. He's more like Chevy Chase or Henry Ford or something. <laughs> anyway, my mother um, had a deep interest in the natural environment. She wanted to, in some respects, do the modern version of what Sir Joseph Banks did on um, with Darwin and with Cook in the voyages around the Pacific, documenting the incredible natural wonders of the world. And so because of that, she would convince my father to rig whatever camping gear we were, we were needed to go to all of Australia's most exotic and incredible places. And I was, that was like every holiday that I remember, and including many of the islands way up north and all the way across the country. And I think 
just through her storytelling um, around what we were losing, I was very aware, I've always been very aware about, you know, potentially what we have to lose. As an engineer and a physicist, I know just how far away Mars is and cold and horrible, so I feel the, <laughs> <laughs> the it, is, it is our only home. And um, I'm very concerned about, you know, it's, it's going to be a pretty awful, boring world if we lose the other apes, our closest relatives, if we lose any, any of the species. But honestly, we're on track to lose half the species. And, and I think it is something unbelievably worth fighting for um, because I think the world that we, we live in should be beautiful, could be beautiful. And then, um, you know, I think it emphasises the point now. We, we, I think we need to be narrating the stories of what we have to win and what we have to win is, is, in some respects, beauty. It's almost an aesthetic argument that I'd provide for what makes me fight for climate change. It's just, we have to fight for beauty. Mm. Thank you, lovely. Um, I want to ask this question of all of you, and I'll start with you, Rebecca, that obviously one of the things that has been at the forefront of the analysis of the recent election is how central climate change was in people's decisions about who they voted for, across the board, really. Um, and it signals a real shift um, in how much that issue was prioritised by the broader Australian community. And I wonder what your reflection was, seeing this issue that's close to your heart, start to become so important to so many Australians. Um, how did that feel? And what do you think that means in terms of the possibilities in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I've, I've been a researcher for 20 years and I've seen people say on surveys that climate and environment are important to them, but we haven't seen that expressed uh, in a complex way in a federal election the way we have. So it wasn't that I was doubting that they were lying to me, but it was that, I was, um, that they were saying they cared, but they didn't, um, which is always very disappointing. But it was more that I thought that people were losing faith that the electoral system was the best way to express their concern about climate. And there was certainly um, some uh, pent-up frustration. But it's a, you know, often what can happen with the Australian electorate is that, that it can kind of go along with the situation, you know, for a cycle of election cycle, election cycle, and then they break, right? They go, no, really, we care now. And I think that that's what happened. I think a range of other things happened. I think the floods and the fires, even though I said in my talk, that the social research shows that that doesn't shift people dramatically. I think the fact that that book ended um, uh, a pandemic and they really were extraordinary events were making people think maybe this happens. And I think that also the climate movement were very effective in finding different ways to express it. Um, and I also, as uh, we were having a meeting with some people that were doing a big quantitative survey for us and one of the quanties, I'm a quali, said, you know, something's some other thing might have happened in the last three years. And I said, what? He said, some people died and some people got to vote. They didn't get to vote in the last election. I don't think it's the main reason. But, you know, it's just like there's a whole lot of people. And, and, in fact, in the research shows that, you know, the young generation of Australians, like, they are just overwhelmingly, this is their big issue. And so I think a lot of... There was a confluence of events. Um, there was some fantastic campaigning. And it is extraordinary that out of such an unedifying campaign, like really a quite a hot mess of a campaign, the Australian electorate 
made something meaningful out of it um, because they had opportunities to do that, whether it be with community independence, whether it be in flood or fire affected regions, whether it be um, voting for whatever kind of party you wanted to vote for, kind of expressing your concern. So um, it was quite an extraordinary night. I had spent the night with a whole lot of other climate activists. We were watching it unfold. And um, I don't think we quite believed that it was happening, but it's happened. But the question is now, what do we do with it? How do we keep that momentum? Um, the other thing that I think is happening is, um, and you know, wonderful um, scientists like Dr. Leslie Hughes talk about this. For the 20 years that I've been researching Australians, uh, the dates around climate really being, you know, the, the, the kind of the uh, years that we have to do, deal with it were more like 10 or 20 years. Now it's kind of seven. And as I often say, there are mustards in my fridge which will be there in seven years' time. Like, that is a short <laughs> period of time. And, of course, because of fabulous people like um, Saul and other people, the economics is changing. So once people who are interested in insurance start talking about climate change, once wealthy white guys start getting interested, then you know <laughs> that it's just a matter of time. Saul, how did you feel seeing that um, the issue of climate change reflected like that across the electorate? And how does it make you feel in terms of what might be possible with some of the agendas that you've been working on for a very long time? Well, first we should talk about how we're going to use that mustard as a biofuel. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you had mustards in the fridge that have been there from what I can tell. Um, so I, I sit in a difficult position. This will be the second change of government that I was rooting for, that the day after the change of government happens, I've got to start criticising the new guys. And that's a pretty awkward position. I went through that in the US, obviously worked pretty hard. Um, tried to get Trump to do something on climate, actually, because you've got to try to work both sides. Gosh, what did you do? There was hope in the first few weeks, and his daughter, who actually had a daughter your age yeah. in school with one of my best friends, so we tried through her. She's very um, concerned about climate change, actually, although she seemed to change that opinion quickly. Um, but you've got to try every shot on goal here, right? Mm. Anyway, so Biden got in. The day after, Gina McCarthy, who is an extraordinary hire uh, to, to run climate, uh, and uh, announced that 50% reductions by 2030, first climate science-based target of a major Western nation and I got really excited and then rolled up my sleeves, worked really hard with the US government on making action. I think we're now on target for maybe 10 or 15% reductions in the US by 2030. It, they didn't get a big enough majority. Joe Manchin is maybe not a Democrat. Um, <laughs> the US is just struggling with the basics, like how to raise children, obviously, without, um, it means it's, I, anyway, we moved here in some respects, betting that Australia, because the economics will be better on renewables and clean energy here first, that if you were trying to look for the country that had the best opportunity to make the biggest difference, um, it's Australia, because we could be doing it saving money. I think that the, the democracy is a little more robust here than it is in a lot of Europe and America. And so 
moved here with the hope that that would happen again, worked with both sides and with all the independents leading into this election, just advocating for the best policy. Now we have Labor coming in and I'm already concerned. So why would you be concerned? So I think the old guys, were, they wanted 26% reductions, Labor has sort of announced 43%. If they have a three in it that is so specific, that means they're trying to hoodwink you with the artificial accuracy of that number. We can't measure emissions to within 1% accuracy. So that should make you concerned. There's no real plan there, and 43% is not good enough anyway, right? If we are really shooting for one and a half degrees, which we should be, and we discount the accounting measured cheats at the IPCC that Australia and the US put in there, namely negative emissions that aren't really going to manifest. Really, we've got to be talking 50, 60, 70% emissions reductions by 2030. The only people who have this right are the climate scientists, and they're not noisy enough, but the children are, and that's why the children say it's a climate emergency. So we've had a few days of the new government now. They haven't announced it's a climate emergency yet. So it gives me pause. We're not really on the pathway. South Australian government announced today that it's a climate emergency. That is good. And if I can unpack why language, as you pointed out in narration, is, is important, um, the reason emergency was used very specifically early in the climate days is governments are given special powers in times of emergency. Times of war typically are times of emergency. In fact, one of the successful things that Rewiring America, an organization I started in the US, will get by this week is we started the Heater Act in the US that will make it through Parliament there this week, and that will use the US Wartime Production Act, first employed in 1940 to build the armaments to defeat Hitler, um, to make heat pumps so that Europe, in America, to send to Europe so Europe can get off Russian natural gas faster in the Ukraine crisis. Mm. And so you can do things, so industry by itself cannot and will not go fast enough to go anywhere near a one and a half or two degree target. Energy industry, which is where all, the great majority of emissions come from, is hugely regulated in a way that works for it in, in, in concert with government. So there's no way out of here unless government works with industry and there's no way to hit the climate emergency target of 70 degrees unless the government enables industry, which means we've got to not play by traditional the last 50 years of capitalist rules if we're going to win. And I haven't heard any of those things said by any of the people who just won the climate election except for the independents and I think they get it, and some people like Pocock in the Senate, and I am highly encouraged by that. So I'm also, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be optimistic until Labor is not doing enough. We have to remain optimistic, but what gives me more optimism in this election is not just the climate message that came through, but the community message that came through. Mm. And if I'm allowed just a minute to unpack that, I just wrote a book, I'd spent 25 years in the US, I had to do a book tour. I called my mum, I said, would you like to go on a book tour with me? She said, absolutely. So I had my mum and me in an electric car for 10,000 kilometers around Australia. She had me prisoner. One of our first stops with, was with Helen Haynes, one of the original um, female independents in this country. And I did three or four days, sort of 
um, I thought I was on the book tour, but I ended up just sort of tagging along behind this whirlwind woman doing original community politics where she's out there listening and talking to people. And in community after community where she took me, uh, there were women who had, were rolling up their sleeves running the community solar project, the community battery project, the community renewable centre, the community education centre, etc., etc. every single community. This is in rural Australia where I didn't expect to see this level of like on the ground, in the community yeah. action. Um, I think the very bold set of female independents that just got up symbolised this community up action on climate change. And I think all of my optimism, not just in Australia but in the world politically, is that we're going to solve this with demand from the community up. Unless all of those communities rise up, unless we continue to demand even more pressure on our governments to actually start doing things like wartime production powers to make the things that are necessary, actually just eliminating the subsidies for fossil fuels, which, you know, that's still going to be a fight that's on this year, right? Um, what we just did was give $3 billion of Australian money to foreign oil companies as a e extra kick on the $8 billion we wrote into the budget just recently as a, a fuel subsidy. If you spent $20,000 per vehicle to buy down the cost of an electric vehicle so that it was the same cost as a petrol vehicle, you could that subsidy, that's one annual subsidy, that would buy 400,000 electric vehicles in Australia, half of the vehicle fleet in one year. Yeah. And can you imagine what we, you could do with some of that money for the communities where people still have jobs in fossil fuels and they have some pretty reasonable questions about how they're going to live the rest of their lives? Yeah, it could, be, it, it could be, should be great for Australia, but we still have to put pressure on and we have to do it from the community up and, and we have to do the storytelling in, mm. in the communities. We need to arm all of those volunteers and all those communities but like, this is how it's going to work. What I heard out there on the book tour was this incredible demand for how does it change my house, how does it change the local community, how does it influence my cousin's job, my husband's job, my daughter's future, and there's not enough people telling positive stories at that level. Um, and in some respects, what people really want to hear is it won't change so much as to be unrecognisable, which is now a possible story to tell. Roughly, it's, you know, electrify your car, electrify your heat, put solar panels on and then don't wait for the government to promise hydrogen in the future. We've got to do what we have to do today. Thank you. Um, Tish, you of course do have a very powerful story to tell and you have been a very strong advocate with a strong group of young people telling everyone it's a climate crisis and, uh, and you come from uh, a place where community is everything. So I wonder from your reflections and your position, what did it mean to you to see so many of the broader Australian public take up this issue of climate change as something that was important to them? And how do you hope this might change some of the advocacy and issues that you're working on? A lot there. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I think just like hearing here already, it's like, it does start with like 
community and that consultation process, having these incredible yarns and how we bring on everyone into this journey with us. For most of my life, I'm more youth adjacent now, <laughs> um, but for most of my life we've been under a gov like a federal government that hasn't prioritised, um, you know, climate action. And so, uh, like, it's been... It feels like it's been a journey, a battle, because, you know, we've, uh, it's more than just, you know, this, like, all these tangible actions, because for us, it's, you know, it's, it's our way of life. We're so deeply connected, and, you know, so many First Nations talk about how we have that nature, inter like, nature interaction and interconnection, because we're so, we are a part of our oceans, our sea, and our skies. Um, but, you know, still in this country, we are, like, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are disproportionately affected by the impacts and causations of climate change. Our ecologically diverse land and sea country will still be, like, is still under threat until we really see systemic change that looks like First Nations people have the autonomy to say, well, and have the right to say what and what doesn't happen to their land. And so... This, you know, and this fight for land or land rights is that one that extends back until, you know, since those tall ships from 1788. And so what started out as, like, these frontier wars, um, you know, has transformed into these incredible, massive moment, uh, m moments, movements and mobilisations throughout the 60s and 70s, um, you know, from marching the streets of Redfern uh, to, you know, the uh, brave stand of the Gurindji mob who walked off, you know, um, Wave Hill Station onto um, Water Creek. And this is a legacy that is, you know, left to us. And this is the legacy that we continue today. And especially for me, tomorrow marks 30, the 30th anniversary of the Mabo decision. And so, you know, this, these are the things that I could only be here, we could only be here if it wasn't from the work and, you know, standing on the shoulders of their incredible leadership, uh, strength and resilience um, so that we can continue to exist in this country. But this announcement, on that announcement on May 21st, well, I was in, I don't know if any of you know, uh, nor Northern Peninsula area, which is the most northern tip of Australia, has a deadly sign, you've, hit, you've reached the top. Um, uh, I was, you know, with community members after, you know, going into community and trying to turn out the vote. And I, like, it was, like, really empowering because we got to talk, like, our mob got to actually talk about what this actually really means to us. And they, like, their hope in their eyes was what gave me hope. And it, it was relief. And I think, like, you said that, that same to that feeling of, like, ah, oh, I'm asleep tonight. <laughs> and especially if you're a campaigner or an organiser, you probably have, like, stacked up toil there. Um, but, you know, through that, um, through my work um, with Seed Mob, we build the capacity of young First Nations people, uh, people's self-determination to lead in their communities uh, because for far too long, young First Nations people's voices have been and are still missing a seat at the table when decisions are being made that impact our future. And you shared that image with like the school strikers 
Now we're seeing the next generation that are feeling it and seeing it and it is a priority because it is our future at risk and we are the ones that will bear the brunt of this. And so May 21st actually also saw, not only saw that teal wave, but a new era for First Nations justice in this country. We saw nationwide swings to progressive candidates and most First Nations elected to parliament ever with deadly staunch black women to the front. And so, you know, it was like this was the work from incredible community-led, grass-led organisations and the climate movement to really be out there on the ground. And so, you know, this is, uh, yeah, it's uh, a shift. And it's like a, yeah. Um, I just want to, it's not my story to tell, but I've never shared this story with you, Tish, but I went to the climate reality training that Al Gore did um, a couple of years ago in Brisbane. And there were some fantastic representatives from the Torres Strait Islander community. And um, one man um, stood up and he said, you know, in in my culture, when a a child is born, we often, like, um, plant a tree for them. And um, that tree represents its kind of, you know, that child. And then he put up an image of all these trees just going out into the sea. And he said, this is what's happening with the trees that we plant for our children and we are reburying our ancestors and we have no um, cultural protocol. And for me, that imi- like the, when that image came up, the whole audience kind of gasped. It was so shocking. But it was another kind of light bulb moment for me, which is that climate change not only threatens the future, it destroys the past. It kind of... Um, it, it kind of threatens to unravel the things that we value about our background. And I wondered what would happen to most um, non-Indigenous Australians if you got a phone call and said, you've got to rebury Nana because of climate change. It would just be extraordinarily difficult. And so it was in that moment and that image and that story that made me not only realise that this is impersonal to me and my children, but a deeply Australian story where some people are being affected differently and, um, yeah, I'll never forget that image of those trees kind of, like, um, yeah, going out into the water. I was going to ask you about the work you've been doing at the Australian Museum mm. to extend climate audience research. Yeah. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that work and how it's uh, creating better education and outreach. I hope I'm doing that for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the story we're telling that's here right. tonight. Um, Look, I think, the, I think museums and uh, art galleries and cultural institutions have a unique opportunity to speak to people. Um, they have a permission, first of all, museums like this have a permission to speak about science. When you come here, whether you're trying to escape the heat or you're trying to do something on the afternoon or you want to go see a dinosaur, you're just this close to selling your children on eBay, so you want to bring them here and just like, be able to just zone out. Um, no offence. Have they, have they been... Are they still there? <laughs> no? Nobody sold them. All right, thank you. Um, uh, I think that people come here with a bit of an open mind and ready to absorb some science. Um, what we find is, except for people who are really alarmed on climate change, most people don't really talk about it and most people find a way to avoid it, right? which um, is something that my publishers told me when I wrote a book on climate change. They didn't think it would have a very broad audience. 
Um, so one of the things, one of the, the challenges we have, and this is why this last election result has been so important, is for a long time what I've felt in the community that aren't engaged on climate change is just a fatalism. The people who are supposed to be solving this problem can't seem to do it. So don't, I don't want to think about it too much, I want to avoid it, it seems complicated, it seems politicised. So when people walk into the museum and they find a way to learn about these things and particularly learn about the causes, we still have um, a good chunk of the population that think climate change is being caused by a combination of us and natural cycles. So there's a bit of education to be done about what drives it, but also a lot of education to be done about that we have the tools, right? We have the tools to solve it. So um, the Australian Museum is thinking in everything that it does, how can it reach all of those engaged, disengaged audiences, people who are on you know, different parts of the journey, and what are the best ways to talk to them about it, engage them. And this could spark an ongoing interest or conversation, or at the very least, a sense of optimism that we can do some things and some excitement about it. Great. Thanks. Um, I'm mindful of the time, but I just wanted to throw a couple of other questions at you. And um, Saul, obviously you had, had some views about what a government should and shouldn't be doing in terms of how you might judge it. Um, we need to meet emission reduction targets by 2030. If you were the Minister for the Environment, what would be the things that you would prioritise? Um, the time is so short now, you have to go beyond targets to priorities. Very successfully in this country and around the world, the fossil fuel industry's only remaining tactic is delay and distraction. I am enormously concerned that Australia is betting the farm on hydrogen, for example. There is not a single emission in our domestic economy that's going to be sold by hydrogen this decade. Not, uh, I have built and sold hydrogen vehicle tank technology to all the world's automotive makers. We lost the race to electricity for good reasons. It's, it, anyway, I know enough to know that it's not going to win. And going back to the 50% or more reductions, this decade, that means you now have to think about what works right now today. What works right now today are things in our domestic economy. It's our castles and our cars. It's how, and so that's what we need to prioritise this decade because, quite frankly, I talked to a man today who's invented a fabulous technology using seaweed to get rid of 90% of the emissions from cows, which is Australia's fourth largest source of emissions. But, you know, he's doing 200,000 cows in 2026 out of 28 million in the national livestock, right? Steel making, my first job was in the blast furnace in Newcastle, so I also know my way around steel. That's not going to be green this decade. So we now have to be very blunt about what we can do. So, you know, we've had no, no electric vehicle policy in this country, um, and so we're running last in the international race to get them on in, into the country. Um, we need to prioritise that. We need to, you know, Let's just look around the world and try to say what would be the best policy that's already happening somewhere. Norway, no vehicle will be purchased after 2025 that emits carbon dioxide. Um, Britain's 2030, America's 50% by 2030. Honestly, we should have Norway's levels. By the way, two cents a kilometre to drive an electric car in Australia, 20 cents a kilometre at Putin's petrol pump. 
So it's all, the economics are already there. It would be good. Um, we need to have no, no one should be allowed to buy a natural gas appliance ever again. That's for your kitchen, that's for your hot water heater, that's for your thing. Not only does that, will that help us meet our emissions targets, it will improve the health of your children. It's the leading cause of respiratory illness and asthma in developed countries. So, you know, everything's a win-win when you start to look at it. But we need to have this huge shift in focus from far, the, you know, we, we had a fear campaign about what we had to lose in the export economy, so everyone tried to do storytelling about how we're going to replace the export economies with hydrogen and stuff, but it le led to apathy and distraction from the stuff that works today. So we need to focus on domestic economy, electrification, um, and, in, and then investment in those things that are going to be critical to Australia for the future, which is steel, which is cows, which is uh, aluminium, um, so that they're ready to go next decade because, again, Australia has got the only easy path to zero emissions. In fact, so easy that we can create 200, 300, 400, 500% of the energy we need with zero emissions. And, you know, Europe will struggle to get to zero because they have very cold, dark winters and Asia will, will struggle to get to zero because they have such high population density. So they, we, will, we are the logical place to be the world's foundry. So we should also be setting up for that because all those wind turbines, all those solar cells need steel, they need glass, they need aluminum, things that we're good at. So we need to stop allowing the fossil fuel companies to not only undermine the science, but actually play this distraction game with future, false future promises. We need to get over 50-year-old idea that efficiency is the solution, so smaller cars, smaller homes. We're not going to convince the population in time. We just have to give them what they want, and it's going to be electric, and it might not be exactly what the environmentalists want, but at least it gets to zero emissions. Mm. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got to prioritise, we've got to declare an emergency, and we've got to move faster than the market would, and that's going to be uncomfortable for a lot of people who believe in free markets. Tish, the question I wanted to uh, ask you um, that I think is really important in this conversation, you've been involved with a lot of discussions that have talked about the importance of First Nations people being central to discussions around climate. Um, I know from myself as an, uh, a Uwala Milleroy woman, it's no coincidence I'm a part of the world's oldest living culture. I wonder if you could share with us why you think it's so important that First Nations people have that central role in this debate. Straight up, like honestly, like it's, you, you know, we got to this, you know, we celebrate how amazing that we have, we are the oldest living culture on this, you know, here and we should be really proud of it. We have lived so interconnected with our land seas that <clears throat> how we got here in the first place is, uh, you know, there are root causes. And so it's understanding actually that, so that when we come to like, where we have to really shift and be aggressive from like being dependent on this industrial uh, civilization and really shift back to an ecological civilization, one in harmony. And my um, incredible sister, who's a proud uh, Kalkadun, Aranda, and Gadigal woman, Lily Madden, she says that it's about, she says it so beautifully that it's about instead of ownership, but belonging to the land. 
And so it's actually reconnecting back to that space. And so we all have experienced that feeling, right? Where you've been just in a really beautiful space, whether it's by the beach, in the mountains, in the snow, by the creek, by the river. And that feeling you get, that feeling that just, you know it, that's us every day. That is us, how we live. And so it's really just, as, as we are solutions focused in this country, we need to bring on the first people and their knowledge on how we can do it together. And so, you know, with, you know, catastrophic events like our bushfires, we saw that, wow, if we embedded that traditional knowledge of fire burning, you know, how that could have made just a little bit of difference from those detrimental impacts. And so it's like bringing the First Nations knowledge along here with us and being that a part of the solution, uh, being, at the, you know, foremost of the solution. And importantly, it's got to be us leading it. You know, it's got to be us leading this space because we know and we have those solutions. Lovely. Mm. I'll follow you. Yeah. <laughs> um, just finally, Rebecca, we, we made Saul Minister for the Environment and he has a great agenda. Yep. But you did make the point that people can feel like with an issue like climate, it is so overwhelming, there is nothing you can do. What is your advice in terms of what difference an individual can make to an issue like this? Well, I think that uh, going back to a bit that I talked about in the oration, I think it's less, think less about what you can do as an individual and think about the already existing networks of people that, you are, that you're active in. If you are, um, if you're in your workplace or in your profession or a PNC, there's nothing like a group of really angry mothers, you know, having <laughs> done a lot of canteen duty, they're terrifying. And all we have to do is kind of turn that canteen duty energy towards, um, you know, running as an independent or something. Um, so I think that part of what I say is, forget, you know, do all the wonderful things that you can in your own home, change your superannuation, do all those things. But more importantly, think about how you can bring your passion to climate change about the things in the things you already do. Because the terrifying thing about climate change is it affects all of us in different ways, but every aspect of our life. But the powerful thing is that we all have the permission in whatever we do as consumers, as voters, as employees, as parents to act on it. And for me, when I had my kind of climate moment, I didn't think, right, time to, you know, join Instinction Rebellion or, you know, quit my job. I thought, I do this job, how can I do this job for the sake of the planet? So that's what I would say. Think about where you already have connections, power, knowledge um, and, and people and use that. Thank you. That's great advice. Now, I have to apologise for being a terrible facilitator because I did not leave enough time for audience questions because <laughs> the answers were so rich and we still didn't get through everything we'd hoped to cover. So I'm sure that Rebecca Huntley, Tish King and Saul Griffith, who we should be very glad that we heard from tonight, will make up for my flaws, but if you do have something you want to discuss with them, I'm sure they will generously have a chat to you after sure. this. Um, but can you thank me in, um, join me in thanking them for sharing with us their insights and giving us a bit of hope and a bit of a reality check about what <laughs> we need to do. But I think you can um, 
share with me the sense of um, gratitude for the work that they're doing and the wisdom that they've shared with us tonight. Thank you so much. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.